Welcome to Ratchet Book Club, where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916-633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. If you're wondering who the we are and we read hood classics and good classics, it's my wife. Sometimes, you know, y'all, y'all, y'all who just got started with The Princess Bride, and I appreciate it. If you go back and listen to the other stories, which I really hope you do because they're all really good, except for Horson, but it's really good how I read it. Um, and The Coldest Winter Ever. And Love My Wife and Her Sister 2, Part 2 and Part 3. But the way I read them makes them great. Anyhow, if you go back, sometimes she's in the background. And she'll pop in with her thoughts and her uh, comments and and everything like that. Um, And, um, yeah, her laugh. Her laugh makes the show as it is. So, there it is. Um, But right now, it's just me, Derek. Yeah. Chapter 7. The Wedding Anigo allowed Fezzik to open the door. Not because he wished to hide behind the giant strength, but rather because the giant strength was crucial to their entering. Also, I want to mention, this whole thing, the Zoo of Death, I hope I gave y'all enough time to ruminate on it and be like, what the heck is the Zoo of Death? Because the Zoo of Death was not in the movie. Not a peep. Not a drop. Not a question. Y'all are in for a treat. Anigo allowed Fezzik to open the door. Not because he wished to hide behind the giant strength, but rather because the giant strength was crucial to their entering. Someone would have to force the thick doors from his hinges, and that was right up Fezzik's alley. It's open, Fezzik said, simply turning the knob, peering inside. Open? Anigo hesitated. Close it then. There must be something wrong. Why would something as valuable as the prince's private zoo be left unlocked? It smells of animal something awful in there, Fezzik said. Did I get a whiff? Let me think, Anigo said. I'll figure it out. And he tried to do his best, but it made no sense. You didn't leave diamonds lying about on the breakfast table, and you kept the zoo of death shut and bolted. So there had to be a reason. It was just a matter of exercising your brain power, and the answer will be there. The answer to why the door happened to be unlocked was really this. It was always unlocked. And the reason for that was really this. Safety. No one who had entered via the front door had ever survived the exit again. The idea basically belonged to Count Rugen, who helped the prince architect the place. The prince selected the location. The farthest corner of the castle grounds, away from everything, so the roars wouldn't bother the servants. But the count designed the entrance. The real entrance was by a giant tree, where a root lifted and revealed a staircase and down you went until you arrived at the fifth level. The false entrance, called the real entrance, took you down the levels the ordinary way. First to second, second to third, or actually second to death. Yes, Anigo said finally. You figured it out? The reason the door was unlocked is simply this. The albino would have locked it, He never would have been so stupid as not to. But, Fezzik, my friend, we got to him before he got to it. Clearly, once he was done with his wheelbarrowing, he would have begun locking and bolting. It's quite alright. You can stop worrying. Let's go. 
I just feel so safe with you, Fezzik said, and then he pulled the door open a second time. As he did it, he noticed that not only was the door unlocked, it didn't even have a place for a lock, and he wondered should he mention that to Inigo, but decided against it, because Inigo would have to wait and figure some more, and they had done enough of that already. Because, although he said he felt safe with Inigo, in truth, he was really frightened. He had heard odd things about this place, and lions didn't bother him, and who cared about gorillas? They were nothing. It was the creepers that made him squeamish, and the slitherers, and the stingers, and the... And the everything, Fezzik decided, to be truthful and honest. Spiders and snakes and bugs and bats and you name it! <laughs> he just wasn't very fond of any of them. Still smells of animals, he said. And he held the door open for Inigo. And together, stride for stride, they entered the zoo of death. The great door shutting silently behind them. Quite a bizarre place, Inigo said, moving past several large cages in which there were cheetahs and hummingbirds and other swift things. At the end of the hall was another door with a sign above it saying, To Level 2. They opened that door and saw a flight of stairs leading very steeply down. Careful, Inigo said. Stay close to me and watch your balance. They started down toward the second level. If I tell you something... Will you promise not to laugh at me or mock me or be mean to me? Fezzik asked. <laughs> I mean, if there was ever a statement line that needs to be tattooed on my forehead. If there was ever a statement line that needed to be like the letterhead for any emails I lead out with. If there was ever a statement line that needed to be put on a business card that I would hand to people. If I tell you something. Will you promise not to laugh at me or mock me or be mean to me? It's such a small statement and yet it hits me in such a way. That hits me in such a way because if I open myself up to you, do you promise not to vilify me for it? If I open myself up to you, do you promise not to use it later with somebody else when you get mad at me? If I open myself up to you, do you promise to just listen and not comment and not embarrass me or make me feel badly about it? If I open myself up to you, can I trust you? That's big for Fezzik to ask. Because the stuff he went through with his parents, the fear of abandonment, the fact that his parents died when he was very young, the fact that nobody's ever really liked him, they all booed him because he was so good at what he did, the fact that he was always told that he was stupid and the only friend he has that didn't is a Nego. And he has to trust, even now, years into the relationship, months into the relationship, I say years, at least like two years. He has a trust now that his friends still wouldn't laugh at him. After all that that they've been through, you promise not to make fun of me? And I go through that sometimes. Where it's like, you know, I know this person. Even with my wife, I know this person. But yet, to quote the great and inimitable Erica Badu, I'm insecure, but I can't help it. By the way, that song is called Green Eyes, and it's beautiful. Y'all should really check it out. It's on her second album, Mama's Gun, which is her best album, in my opinion. Go argue with the door. I'm reading. If I tell you something, 
Will you promise not to laugh at me or mock me or be mean to me? Fezzik asked. My word, Anigo nodded. I'm just scared to pieces, Fezzik said. Be sure it ceases, Anigo said right back. Oh, that's a wonderful rhyme. Some other time, Anigo said, making another, feeling quite bright about the whole thing, sensing the pleasure in having Fezzik visibly relax as they descended. So he smiled and clapped Fezzik on the great shoulder for the good fellow he was. But deep, deep inside, Anigo's stomach was nodding. He was absolutely appalled and astonished that a man of unlimited strength and power would be scared to pieces. Until Fezzik spoke, Anigo was positive that he was the only one who was genuinely scared to pieces, and the fact that they both were did not bode well if panic time came. Someone would have to keep his wits, and he had assumed automatically that since Fezzik had so few, he would find retaining them not all that difficult. No good, Anigo realized. Well, he would simply have to do his best to avoid panic situations, and that was that. The staircase was straight and very long, but eventually they reached the end of it. Another door. Fezzik gave it a push. It opened. Another corridor lined with cages, big ones though, and inside, great bang hippos and a 20-foot alligator thrashing angrily in shallow water. We must hurry, Anigo said, picking up the pace, much as we might like to dawdle. And he half ran towards a sign that said to level three. Anigo opened the door and looked down, and Fezzik peered over his shoulder. Hmm, Anigo said. This staircase was different. It was not nearly as steep, and it curved halfway, so whatever was near the bottom of it was quite out of sight as they stood at the top preparing to go down. There were strange candles burning high on the walls out of reach. The shadows they made were very long and very thin. Well, I'm certainly glad I wasn't brought up here, Anigo said, trying it for a joke. Fear, Fezzik said, the rhyme out before he could stop it. Anigo exploded. Really, if you can't maintain control, I'm going to send you right back up there and then you can just wait all by yourself. Please don't leave me. I mean, don't make me leave you. Please, I meant to say beer. I don't know how the F got in there. I'm really losing patience with you. Come along, Anigo said, and he started down the curving stairs, Fezzik following, and as the doors closed behind them, two things happened. One, the door quite clearly locked. Two, out went the candles on the high walls. Don't be frightened, Anigo screamed. I'm not, I'm not, Fezzik screamed right back, and then... Above his heartbeat, he managed, What are we going to do? Simple, said Anigo after a while. Are you frightened too? asked Fezzik in the darkness. Not remotely, Anigo said with great care. And before, I meant to say easy. I don't know how that got in there. Look, we can't go back and we certainly don't want to stay here. So we just must keep on going as we were before these little things happened. Down. Down is our direction, Fezzik, but I can tell you're a bit edgy about all this, so out of the goodness of my heart, I will let you walk down not behind me and not in front of me, but right next to me, on the same step, stride for stride, and you put an arm around my shoulder, because that'll probably make you feel better, and I, so as to not make you feel foolish, will put an arm around your shoulder, and thus, safe, protected, together, we will descend." 
Will you draw your sword with your free hand? I already have. Will you make a fist with yours? Oh, it's clenched. Then let's look on the bright side. We're having an adventure, Fezzik. And most people live and die without being as lucky as we are. They moved down one step. Then another. Then two. Then three. As they got the hang of it. Why do you think they locked the door behind us? Fezzik asked as they moved. To add spice to our trip, I suspect, replied Inigo. It was certainly one of his weaker answers, but the best he could come up with. Here's where the turn starts, said Fezzik, and they slowed, making the sharp turn without stumbling, continuing on down. And they took away the candles for the same reason? Spice? Most likely. Don't squeeze me quite so hard. Don't you squeeze me quite so hard. By then, they knew they were in for it. There has been, for many years, a running battle amongst jungle zoologists as to which of the giant snakes is the biggest. The anaconda men are forever trumping in the Orinoco specimen that weighed well over 500 pounds, while the python people never failed to reply by pointing out that the African rock found outside the Zambesi measured 34 feet 7 inches. The argument, of course, is silly, because biggest is a vague word, having no value whatsoever in arguments, if one is serious. But any serious snake enthusiast would admit, whatever his schooling, that the Arabian Garstini, though shorter than the python and lighter than the anaconda, was quicker and more ravenous than either. And this specimen of Prince Humperdinck's was not only remarkable for its speed and agility, it was also kept in a permanent state, just verging on the outskirts of starvation, so the first coil came like lightning as it dropped from above them and pinging their hands so their fists and sword were useless, and the second coil imprisoned their arms and do something, Anigo cried. I can't. I'm caught. You do something. Fight it, Fezzik. It's too strong for me. Nothing is too strong for you. The third coil was done now, around the upper shoulders, and the fourth coil, the final coil, involved the throat. And Inigo whispered in terror, because he could hear the beast breathing now, could actually feel his breath. Fight it! Fight it! Um, um... Fezzik trembled with fear and whispered, Forgive me, Inigo. Oh, Fezzik. Fezzik. What? I had such rhymes for you. What rhymes? Silence. The fourth quail was finished. Anigo, what rhymes? Silence. Snake breath. Anigo, I want to know the rhymes before I die. Anigo, I really want to know. Anigo, tell me the rhymes, Fezzik said. And by now he was really frustrated. And more than that, he was spectacularly angry. And one arm came free of one coil, and that made it a bit less of a chore to fight free of the second coil. And that meant he could take that arm and bring it to the aid of the other arm. And now he was yelling it out. You're not going anywhere until I know those rhymes. And the sound of his own voice was really very impressive, deep and resonant. And who was this snake anyway, getting in the path of Fezzik when there were rhymes to learn? And by this time, not only were both arms free of the bottom three coils, but he was furious at the interruption and his hands grabbed toward the snake breath. And he didn't know if snakes had necks or not, but whatever it was you called that part that was under his mouth, that was the part he had between his great hands, and he gave it a smash against the wall, and the snake hissed and spit. But the fourth coil was looser. 
So Fezzik smashed it again the third time, and then he brought his hands back a bit for leverage and began to whip the beast against the walls like a native washerwoman beating a skirt against rocks. And when the snake was dead, Inigo said, Actually, I had no specific rhymes in mind. I just had to do something to get you into action. Fezzik was panting terribly from his labors. You lied to me is what you're saying. My only friend in all my life turns out to be a liar. He started tromping down the stairs, Inigo stumbling after him. I mean, I understand where Fezzik's coming from. That's manipulation right there. Like, straight up. And I've read books where, like, um, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, by the, you know, basketball player, by the way. Um, he was in high school and was playing a game. And his coach, who's white, uh, at halftime, the team was down, I think, by like four points. So the coach went in there and yelled at everybody. And coaches don't do that. Like, seriously, there's there's ways. If you don't like being yelled at, don't yell at people. Like, why? But um, I digress. He's going from player to player yelling at them. And this coach, who's white, turns to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And he's like, you're not playing with strength or with passion or anything. You're playing like a... And because this is a kid's book, I'm not going to say the word, but y'all know the word because I say it all the time in my other episodes where I'm reading grown books, urban books. So, yeah. Then after they, Kareem came out and played the game that he usually plays anyway because he's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and one bad half doesn't mean he's going to have a bad game. He came out and they won. The coach runs up to him all excited and someone was like, see, I knew it. I knew me calling you that would fire you up. It was a risk that I was willing to take. I'm, I knew it would work. Dude, you literally just said the word of all words that white people shouldn't say to your star player who trusted you implicitly because you were upset. That's how people are, fam. Y'all got to be on the lookout. And don't be mad when they show you who they are. Just expect that eventually they're going to show you who they are. Fezzik reached the door at the bottom and threw it open and slammed it, with Inigo just managing to slip inside before the door crashed shut. It locked immediately. At the end of this corridor, the two-level four sign was clearly visible, and Fezzik hurried towards it. Inigo pursued him, hurrying past the poisoners, the spitting cobras and gaboon vipers, and perhaps most lethal of all, the lovely tropical stonefish from the ocean outside India. I apologize, Inigo said. One lie in all these years, that's not such a terrible average when you consider it saved our lives. There's such a thing as principle, was all Fezzik would answer, and he opened the door to lead to the fourth level. My father made me promise never to lie, and not once in my life have I even been tempted. And he started down the stairs. Stop, Inigo said. At least examine where we're going. It was a straight staircase, but completely dark. The opening at the far end was invisible. It can't be as bad as where we've been, Fezzik snapped, and down he went. In a way, he was right. For Inigo, bats were never the ultimate nightmare. Oh, he was afraid of them, like everyone else, and he would run and scream if they came near. In his mind, though, hell was not bat-infested. But Fezzik was a Turkish boy, and people claim the fruit bat from Indonesia is the biggest in the world will try telling that to a Turk sometimes. Try telling that to anyone who's heard his mother scream, Here come the king bats! 
followed by the poisonous fluttering of wings. Here come the king bats! <laughs> Fezzik screamed, and he was quite literally, as he stood halfway down the dark steps, paralyzed with fear. And behind him now, doing his best to fight the darkness, came Inigo, and he had never heard that tone before. Not from Fezzik, and Inigo didn't want bats in his hair either, but it wasn't worth that kind of fright, so he started to say, What's so terrible about King Bats? But what was all he had time for before Fezzik cried, Rabies! Rabies! And that was all Inigo needed to know. And he yelled down Fezzik, and Fezzik still couldn't move. So Inigo fell for him in the darkness as the fluttering grew louder, and with all his strength he slammed the giant on the shoulder, hollering, Down! And this time Fezzik went to his knees, obediently. And that wasn't enough, not nearly. So Inigo slammed him again, crying, Flat! Flat! All the way down! Until Fezzik lay on the black stairs, shaking, and Inigo knelt above him, the great six-fingered sword flying into his hands. And this was it. This was a test to see how far down the 90 days of Brandy had taken him. How much of the great Inigo Montoya remained, for yes, he had studied fencing, true. He had spent half his life and more studying the Agrippa attack and the Bonetti defense, and of course he studied his Thibault. But he had also, one desperate time, spent the summer with the only Scot who ever understood swords, the crippled McPherson. And it was McPherson who scoffed at everything Inigo knew. It was McPherson who said, Thibault. Thibault is fine if you fight in a ballroom, but what if you meet your enemy on a terrain that's tilted and you're below him? And for a week, Inigo studied all his moves from below. And then McPherson put him on a hill in the upper position. And when those moves were mastered, McPherson kept right on, for he was a cripple, his legs stopped at the knee, and he had a special feel for adversity. And what if your enemy blinds you, McPherson once said. He throws acid in your eyes, and now he drives in for the kill. What do you do? Tell me that, Spaniard. Survive that, Spaniard. And now, waiting for the charge of the King Bats, Inigo flung his mind back towards the McPherson moves. You had to depend on your ears. You found his heart from his sound, and now, as he waited, above him, Inigo could feel the King Bats massing, while below him, Fezzik trembled like a kitten in cold water. Be still, Inigo commanded, and that was the last sound he made. Because he needed his ears now, and he tilted his head towards the flutter, the great sword firm in his right hand, the deadly point circling slowly in the air. Inigo had never seen a king bat, knew nothing of them. How fast were they? How did they come at you? At what angle? And how many made each charge? The flutter was dead above him now, ten feet perhaps, perhaps more. And could bats see in the night? Did they have that weapon too? Come on, Inigo was about to say. But there was no need, because with a rush of wings he had expected and a high, long shriek he had not, the first king bat swooped down at him. Anigo waited, waited. The flutter was off to the left, and that was wrong, because he knew where he was, and so did the beast. So that meant they must have been preparing something for him. A cut, a sudden turn, and with all control left to his brain, he kept his sword just as it was, circling slowly not following the sound until the fluttering stopped and the king bat veered in silence towards Inigo's face. The six-fingered sword drove through like butter. The death sound of the king bat was close to human, only a bit higher pitched and shorter, and Inigo was only briefly interested because now there was a double flutter. 
They were coming to him from two sides and one right, one left, and McPherson told him to always move from strength to weakness. So Inigo stabbed first to the right, then drove left, and two more almost human sounds came and went. The sword was heavy now. Three dead beasts changed the balance, and Inigo wanted to clear the weapon, but now another flutter, a single one, and no veering this time, straight and deadly for his face, and he ducked and was lucky. The sword moved up and into the heart of the lethal thing, and now there are four skewered on the sword of legend. And Inigo knew he was not about to lose his fight, and from his throat came the words, I am Inigo Montoya, and still the wizard. Come for me. And when he heard three of them fluttering, he wished he had been just a bit more modest, but it was too late for that. So he needed a surprise, and he took it, shifting position against the beast, standing straight, taking their dives long before they expected it. And now there were seven king bats, and his sword was completely out of balance. And that would have been a bad thing, a dangerous thing. Except for one important aspect. There was silence now in the darkness. The fluttering was done. Some giant you are, Inigo said then, and he stepped over Fezzik and hurried down the rest of the darkened stairs. Fezzik got up and lumbered after him, saying, Inigo, listen, I made a mistake before. You didn't lie to me. You tricked me. And Father always said tricking is fine, so I'm not mad at you anymore. And and is that all right with you? It's all right with me. They turned the knob on the door at the bottom of the black stairs and stepped onto the fourth level. Inigo looked at him. You mean you'll forgive me completely for saving your life if I completely forgive you for saving mine? You're my friend. My only one. Pathetic. That's what we are, Anigo said. Athletic. That's very good, Anigo said. So Fezzik knew they were fine again. They started towards a sign that said to level 5, passing strange cages. This the worst yet, Inigo said, and then he jumped back, because behind a pale glass case, a blood eagle was actually eating what looked like an arm. And on the other side, there was a great black pool, and whatever was in it was dark and many-armed, and the water seemed to get sucked towards the center of the pool where the mouth of the thing was. Hurry, Inigo said, and he found himself trembling at the thought of being dropped into the black pool. They opened the door and looked down towards the fifth level. Stunning. In the first place, the door they opened had no lock, so it cannot trap them. And in the second place, the stairs were brightly lit. And in the third place, the stairs were absolutely straight. And in the fourth place, it wasn't a long flight at all. And in the main place, there was nothing inside. It was bright and clean and totally, without a least doubt, empty. I don't believe it for a minute, Inigo said. And holding his sword at the ready, he took the first step down. Stay by the door. The candles will go out any second. He took a second step down. The candles stayed bright. A third step. The fourth. There were only about a dozen steps in all, and he took two more, stopping in the middle. Each step was perhaps a foot in width, so he was six feet from Fezzik, six feet from the large, ornate, green-handled door that opened onto the final level. Fezzik? From the upper door. What? I'm frightened. It looks alright though. No. It's supposed to. That's the fullest. Whatever we've gotten by before, this must be worse. But there's nothing to see, Inigo. Inigo nodded. That's why I'm so frightened. He took another step down toward the final, ornate, green-handled door. Another. Four steps to go. Four feet to go. 
48 inches from death. Inigo took another step. He was trembling now, almost out of control. Why are you shaking? Fezzik said from the top. Death is here. Death is here. He took another step down. 24 inches to dying. Can I come join you now? Inigo shook his head. No point in your dying too. But it's empty. No. Death is here. Now he was out of control. If I could see it, I could fight it. Fezzik didn't know what to do. I'm Inigo Montoya the wizard. Come for me. He turned around and around, sword ready, studying the brightly lit staircase. Now you're scaring me, Fezzik said, and he let the door close behind him and started down the stairs. Inigo started up after him, saying, no. They met on the sixth step. 72 inches from death now. The green speckled recluse doesn't destroy as quickly as the stonefish. And many think the mamba brings more suffering, what with the ulcerating and all. But gram for gram, nothing in the universe comes close to the green speckled recluse. Amongst other spiders, compared with the green speckled recluse, the black widow was a rag doll. Prince Humperdinck's recluse lived behind the ornate green handle on the bottom door. She rarely moved, unless the handle turned. Then, she struck like lightning. On the sixth stair, Fezzik put his arm around Inigo's shoulder. We'll go down together, step by step. There's nothing here, Inigo. To the fifth step. There has to be. Why? Because the prince is a fiend. And Rugen is his twin in misery. And this is their masterpiece. They moved to the fourth step. That's wonderful thinking, Inigo, Fezzik said loud and calmly. But inside, he was starting to go to pieces. Because here he was in this nice bright place, and his one friend in all the world was cracking from the strain. And if you were Fezzik, and you hadn't much brain power, and you found yourself four stories underground in the zoo of death looking for a man in black that you really didn't think was down there, and the one friend that you had in all the world was going quickly mad, what did you do? Three steps now. If you were Fezzik, you panicked, because if Inigo went mad, that meant the leader of this whole expedition was you. And if you were Fezzik, you knew the last thing in the world you could ever be was a leader. So Fezzik did what he always did in a panic situation. He bolted. He just yelled and jumped for the door and slammed it open with his body, never even bothering with the niceties of turning that pretty green handle. And as the door gave behind his strength, he kept right on running until he came to the giant cage and there... Inside and still lay the man in black. Fezzik stopped then, relieved greatly, because seeing that silent body meant one thing. Inigo was right. And if Inigo was right, he couldn't be crazy. And if he wasn't crazy, then Fezzik didn't have to lead anybody anywhere. And when that thought reached his brain, Fezzik smiled. Inigo, for his part, was startled at Fezzik's strange behavior. He saw no reason for it whatsoever and was about to call after Fezzik when he saw a tiny green speckled spider scurrying down from the door handle. So he stepped on it with his boot as he hurried to the cage. Fezzik was already inside the place, kneeling over the body. Don't say it, Inigo said, entering. Fezzik tried not to, but it was on his face. Dead. Inigo examined the body. He had seen a lot of corpses in his time. Dead. Then he sat down miserably on the floor and put his arms around his knees and rocked back and forth like a baby. Back and forth. 
back and forth and back. It was too unfair. You expect an unfairness if you breathed, but this went beyond that. He, Anigo, no thinker, had thought, hadn't he found the man in black? He, Anigo, frightened of beasts and crawlers and anything that stung, had brought them down the zoo unharmed. He had said goodbye to caution and stretched himself far beyond any boundaries he ever dreamed he possessed. And now, after such effort, after being reunited with Fezzik on this day of days for this one purpose, to find the man to help him find a plan to help him revenge his dead Domingo. Gone. All was gone. Hope? Gone. Future? Gone. All the driving forces of his life? Gone. Snuffed out. Beaten. Dead. I am Anigo Montoya, son of Domingo Montoya, and I do not accept it. He sprang to his feet, started up the underground stairs, stopping only long enough to snap commands. Come, come along. Bring the body. He searched through his pockets for a moment, but they were empty from the brandy. Have you any money, Fezzik? Some. They pay well on the brute squad. Well, I just hope it's enough to buy a miracle. That's all. When the knocking started on his hut door, Max almost didn't answer it. Go away, he almost said, because lately it was only kids come to mock him. Except this is a little past the time for kids being up. It was almost midnight, and besides, the knocking was both loud and, at the same time, rat-a-tatty. As if the brain was saying to the fist, hurry it up, I want to see a little action. So Max opened the door of Peaksworth. I don't know you. Aren't you Miracle Max that worked all those years for the king? This skinny guy said. I got fired. Didn't you hear? That's a painful subject. You shouldn't have brought it up. Good night. Next time learn a little manners. And he closed the hut door. Get away. I'm telling you. Or I call the brute squad. I'm on the brute squad. The other voice said from outside the door. A big, deep voice you wanted to stay friendly with. We need a miracle. It's very important, the skinny guy said from outside. I'm retired, Max said. Anyway, you wouldn't want someone the king got rid of, would you? I might kill whoever you want me to miracle. He's already dead, the skinny guy said. He is, huh? Max said, a little interest in his voice now. He opened the door of Peak's Worth again. I'm good at dead. Please, the skinny guy said. Bring him in. I'm not making no promises, Miracle Max answered after some thought. This huge guy and this skinny guy brought in this big guy and put him on the hut floor. Max poked at the corpse. Not so stiff as some, he said. The skinny guy said, We have money. Then go get some great genius specialist, why don't you? Why waste time messing around with me? A guy the king fired. It almost killed him when it happened. For the first two years, he wished it had. His teeth fell out from gnashing. He pulled the few loyal tusks from his scalp in wild anger. You're the only miracle man left alive in Florin, the skinny guy said. Oh, so that's why you came to me. One of you said, what do we do with this corpse? And the other one said, let's take a flyer on that miracle man the king fired. And the first one probably said, what have we got to lose? He can't kill a corpse. And the other one probably said, you were a wonderful miracle man, the skinny guy said. It was all politics that got you fired. 
Don't insult me and say wonderful. I was great. I am great. There was never, never. You hear me, Sonny? A miracle man that could match me. Half the miracle techniques I invented, and then they fired me. Suddenly, his voice trailed off. He was very old and weak, and the effort of passionate speech had drained him. Sir, please sit down, the skinny guy said. Don't serve me, Sonny, Miracle Max said. He was tough when he was young, and he was still tough. I got work to do. I was feeding my witch when you came in. I got to finish that now. And he lifted the hut trap door and took the ladder down into the cellar, locking the trap door behind him. When that was done, he put his fingers to his lips and ran to the old woman cooking hot chocolate over the coals. Max had married Valerie a million years ago, it seemed like, at Miracle School, where she worked as a potion ladler. She wasn't, of course, a witch, but when Max started practice, every Miracle Man had to have one, so, since Valerie didn't mind, he called her a witch in public, and she learned enough of the witch trade to pass herself off as one under pressure. Listen, listen, Max whispered, gesturing repeatedly toward the hut above. Upstairs, you'll never guess what I got. A giant and a Spanish fella. Scars and everything. A very tough cookie. Let them steal what they want. What do we have worth fighting for? They don't want to steal. They want to buy. Me. They got a corpse up there and they want a miracle. You were always good at dead, Valerie said. She hadn't seen him trying so hard to not seem excited since the firing had all but done him in. She very carefully kept her own excitement under control. If only he would work again. Her Max was such a genius. They'd all come back. Every patient. Max would be honored again and they could move out of the hut. In the old days, the hut was where they tried experiments. Now it was home. You had nothing else pressing on for the evening. Why not take the case? I could. I admit that. No question. But suppose I did. You know human nature. They'd probably try getting out without paying. How can I force a giant to pay if he doesn't want to? Who needs that kind of grief? I'll send them on their way and you bring me up a nice cup of chocolate. Besides, I was halfway through an article on Eagle's Claws that was very well written. Get the money in advance. Go. Demand. If they say no, out with them. If they say yes, bring the money down to me. I'll feed it to the frog. They'll never find it even if they change their mind and try and rob it back. Max started back up the ladder. What should I ask for? I haven't done a miracle. It's, it's what, three years now? Prices may have skyrocketed. Fifty, you think? If they've got fifty, I'll consider. If not, out they go. Right, Valerie agreed. And the minute Max had shut the trap door, she clambered silently up the ladder and pressed her ear to the ceiling. Sir, we're in a terrible rush, so... Don't you hurry me, Sonny. You hurry a miracle, man. You get rotten miracles. Is that what you want? You'll do it then? I didn't say I'd do it, Sonny. Don't you try pressuring a miracle man, not this one. You try pressuring me, out you go. How much money you got? Give me your money, Fezzik. The same voice said again. Here's all I got. This great voice boomed. You counted, Inigo. There was a pause. 65 is what we got, the one called Inigo said. Valerie was about to clap her hands with joy when Max said, I never worked for anything that little in my life. You've got to be joking. Excuse me again, I gotta go belch my witch. She's done eating by now. Valerie hurried back to the coals and waited until Max joined her. No good, he said. They've only got twenty. 
Valerie stirred away at the stove. She knew the truth, but dreaded having to say it, so she tried another tack. We're practically out of chocolate powder. Twenty could sure be a help to the barterers tomorrow. No chocolate powder, Max said, visibly upset. Chocolate was one of his favorites, right after cough drops. Maybe if it was a good cause, you could lower yourself to work for twenty, Valerie said. Find out why they need a miracle. They'd probably lie. Use the bellows cram if you're in doubt. Look, I would hate to have it on my conscience if we didn't do a miracle when nice people were involved. You're a pushy lady, Max said, but he went back upstairs. Okay, he said to the skinny guy. What's so special I should bring back out of all the hundreds of people passing me every day for my miracles, this particular fella? And believe me, it better be worthwhile. Anigo was about to say, so he could tell me how to kill Count Rugen. But that didn't quite sound like the kind of thing that would strike a cranky miracle man as aiding the general betterment of mankind. So he said, he's got a wife. He's got 15 kids. They're having a shred of food. If, if he stays dead, they'll starve, so... Oh, Sonny, you're a liar, Max said. And he went to the corner and got out a huge bellows. I'll ask him. Max grunted, lifting the bellows towards Wesley. He's a corpse. He can't talk, Anigo said. We've got our ways, is all Max would answer. And he stuck the huge bellows way down Wesley's throat and started to pump. You see, Max explained as he pumped, there's different kinds of dead. They're sort of dead, mostly dead, and all dead. This fella here, he's only sort of dead, which means there's still a memory inside. There's still bits of brain. You apply a little pressure here, a little more there, sometimes you get results. Wesley was beginning to swell slightly now from all the pumping. What are you doing? Fezzik said, starting to get upset. Never mind, I'm just filling his lungs. I guarantee you it ain't hurting him. He stopped pumping the bellows after a few moments more, and then started shouting into Wesley's ear. What's so important? What's here worth coming back for? What you got waiting for you? Max carried the bellows back to the corner, then got out a pen and paper. It takes a while for that to work its way out, so you might as well answer me some questions. How well do you know this guy? Anigo didn't much want to answer that, since it might have sounded strange admitting that they only met once alive, and then to duel to the death. How do you mean exactly, he replied. Well, for example, Max said, was he ticklish or not? Ticklish? Inigo exploded angrily. Ticklish? Life and death are all around and you talk ticklish. Don't you yell at me, Max exploded right back, and don't you mock my methods. Tickling can be terrific in the proper instances. I had a corpse once, worse than this fella, mostly dead he was, and I tickled him and tickled him. I tickled his toes and I tickled his armpits and his ribs and I got a peacock feather and went after his belly button. I worked all day. Day and I worked all night, and the following dawn, the following dawn marked me. This corpse said, I just hate that. And I said, hate what? And he said, being tickled. I've come all the way back from the dead to ask you to stop. And I said, you mean that this, that I'm doing with the peacock feather, it bothers you? And he said, you couldn't guess how much it bothered me. And of course, I just kept on asking him questions about tickling, making him talk back to me, answer me, because I don't have to tell you. Once you get a corpse really caught up in conversation, your battle's half over. True.
feds grabbed onto Inigo in panic and they both pivoted, staring at the man in black, who was silent again. True love, he said, Inigo cried. You heard him. True love is what he wants to come back for. That's certainly worthwhile. Sonny, don't you tell me what's worthwhile. True love is the best thing in the world, except for cough drops, and everyone knows that. Then you'll save him, Fezzik said. Yes, absolutely, I would save him, if he had said true love. But you misheard, whereas I, being an expert on the barrels cram, will tell you what any qualified tongue man will be only happy to verify. Namely, that the F sound is the hardest for the corpse to master, and that it therefore comes out as V. And what your friend said was to blove, by which he meant obviously to bluff. Clearly he's either involved in a shady business deal or a card game and wishes to win, and that is certainly not reason enough for a miracle. I'm sorry, I never changed my mind once it's made up. Goodbye. Take your corpse with you. Liar! Liar! shrieked suddenly from the now open trap door. Miracle Max world. Back witch! he commanded. I'm not a witch, I'm your wife. She was advancing on him now, an ancient tiny fury. And after what you've just done, I don't think I want to be that anymore. Miracle Max tried to calm her, but she was having none of it. He said true love, Max. Even I could hear it. True love. True love. Don't go on, Max said. And now there was pleading coming from somewhere. Valerie turned towards Inigo. He's rejecting you because he's afraid. He's afraid he's done, that the miracles are gone from his once majestic fingers. Not true, Max said. You're right, Valerie agreed. It isn't true. They never were majestic. Max, you were never any good. The ticklish cure. You were there. You saw. A fluke. All the drowners are returned. Chance. Valerie, we've been married 80 years. How can you do this to me? Because true love is expiring and you haven't got the decency to tell why you won't help. Well, I do. And I say this. Prince Humperdinck was right to fire you. Don't say that name in my hut, Valerie. You made a pledge to me you'd never breathe that name. Prince Humperdinck, Prince Humperdinck, Prince Humperdinck. At least he knows a phony when he sees one. Max fled towards the trap door, his hands going to his ears. But this is his fiance's true love, Inigo said then. If you bring him back to life, he'll stop Prince Humperdinck's marriage. Max's hands left his ears. This corpse here, he comes back to life, Prince Humperdinck suffers? Humiliations galore, Inigo said. Now that's what I call a worthwhile reason, Miracle Max said. Give me the 65. I'm on the case. He knelt beside Wesley. Hmm, he said. What, Valerie said. She knew that tone. While you were doing all that talking, he slipped from sort of to mostly. Valerie tapped Wesley in a couple of places. Stiffening, she said. You have to work around that. Max did a few taps himself. Do you suppose the oracle's still up? Valerie looked at the clock. I don't think so. It's almost one. Besides, I don't trust her all that much anymore. Max nodded. I know, but it would have been nice to have a little advanced hint on whether this is going to work out or not. He rubbed his eyes. I'm tired going in. I wish I had known in advance about the job. I'd have napped this afternoon. He shrugged. Can't be helped. Down is down. Give me my encyclopedia spells and the hex appendix. I thought you knew all about this kind of thing, Anigo said, starting to get upset himself now. 
I'm out of practice, retired. It's been three years. You can't mess around with these resurrection recipes. One little ingredient wrong, the whole thing blows up in your face. Here's the hex book in your glasses, Valerie puffed, coming up the basement ladder. As Max began thumbing through, she turned to Inigo and Fezzik, who were hovering. You can help, she said. Anything, Fezzik said. Tell us whatever's useful. How long do we have for the miracle? If we work it, when we work it, Max said from his hex book. His voice was growing stronger. When we work it, Valerie went on, how long does it have to maintain full efficiency? Just exactly what's going to be done. Well, that's hard to predict, Inigo said, since the first thing we have to do is storm the castle. You can never really be sure how those things are going to work out. An hour pill should be about right, Valerie said. Either it's going to be plenty or you'll both be dead, so why not say an hour? We'll all three be fighting, Inigo corrected. And then, once we storm the castle, we have to stop the wedding, steal the prince, and make her escape. Allowing space in there somewhere for me to duel Count Rugen. Visibly, Valerie's energy drained. She sat wearily down. Max, she said, tapping his shoulder. No good. He looked up. Huh? They need a fighting corpse. Max shut the hex book. No good, he said. But I bought a miracle, Inigo insisted. I paid you 65 Look here, Valerie thumped Wesley's chest. Nothing. You ever hear anything so hollow? The man's life has been sucked away. It'll take months before their strength again. We haven't got months. It's after one now, and the wedding's at six tonight. What parts can we hope to have in working order in 17 hours? Well, Max said considering, certainly the tongue. Absolutely the brain, and with luck, maybe a little slow walk if you nudge him gently in the right direction. Anigo looked at Fezzik in despair. What can I tell you, Max said. You needed a phantasmagoria. And you never could have gotten one of those for 65, Valerie said consolingly. A little cut here. 20 pages, maybe. Here's some action stuff that I cut, which I never did anywhere else, and here's my logic. Inigo and Fezzik had to go through a certain amount of daring do in order to come up with the proper ingredients for the resurrection pill. Stuff like Inigo finding some frog dust, while Fezzik is off after holocaust mud. This latter, for example, requiring first, Fezzik acquiring a holocaust cloak so he doesn't burn or death gathering the mud, etc. Anyhow, we'll pick it up again later, 13 hours later to be precise. Four in the afternoon, two hours before the wedding. You mean that's it? Inigo said, appalled. That's it, Max nodded proudly. He had not been up this long a stretch since the old days, and he felt terrific. Valerie was proud. Beautiful, she said. She turned to Inigo then. You sound so disappointed. What do you think a resurrection pill looked like? Not a lump of clay the size of a golf ball, Inigo answered. I usually give them a coating of chocolate at the last minute. It makes them look a lot better, Valerie said. It must be four o'clock, Max said then. Better get the chocolate ready so it'll have time to harden. Valerie took the lump with her and started down the ladder to the kitchen. You never did a better job. Smile. It'll work without a hitch, Inigo said. Max nodded very firmly, but he did not smile. There was something in the back of his mind bothering him. He never forgot things. Not important things. And he didn't forget this either. He just didn't remember it in time. 916. 
633-1537, Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com, Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Leave a review on Spotify. If you're using Spotify, it only takes a few seconds. I'm not sure if Apple users have this option. Honestly, I'm not trying to be facetious or laugh at y'all or anything. I do that anyway. But I'm not quite sure if y'all still have if y'all have the review option yet. But if you do, uh at the top of the show, my show, Ratchet Book Club, where the actual title is, right underneath where it says following, there's a, a little press button. It says 5.0 because, you know, five-star ratings are great. Um, and next to it, it says 34. Leave a review. Bring that number up. I really do appreciate it. The thing about it is, though, on the Spotify app, when you leave a review, it doesn't actually leave a name or anything. It's just literally the five stars. That's why it only takes like 13 seconds. If you screenshot it and send it to me on Twitter, I will thank you personally because I really do appreciate y'all. Like everybody who listens, I appreciate you. I just didn't want to um, mess up the flow of this show by thanking people for leaving reviews and reading reviews on this show. Um, But I do. I really do appreciate it. So take a screenshot and send it over to me and I'll thank you. Honestly. You can also leave a review on Podchaser. Copy and paste that in Apple Podcasts and copy and paste that into the Good Pods app. You can donate to the show at Patreon.com slash Single Simulcast or at BuyMeACoffee.com slash SSCast or on the Good Pods app itself uh, where you can leave a tip. Thank you again for listening. I greatly appreciate each and every one of y'all. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. Outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this feat. This is Single Simulcast. Don't know my name,